Thank you, God, for meeting with us with us here this morning. Thank you for your love to us, to each one of us, for love for your church. And I pray, God, that you would help my words this morning to be an encouragement to individuals, to the church here as a whole, as part of your church. We have a clear, perhaps a clear vision of your will and a reminder of the thing that we know, things that we know and perhaps a deeper appreciation for the kingdom of Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Africa, there are uh, jungles. I've never been to Africa. Uh, but there are, I, have a, I had a photograph I was going to show you okay, of, of a jungle. And the, the jungle floor was a tangled mass of vines. Um, and I thought about walking through, a, through the jungle, this tangled mass of vines, every step tries to trip you down. And so it takes a lot of careful walking. Uh, in the photo I was going to show you, if you walk through that area, you take a lot of careful walking, like trying to, to walk through a volleyball net spread across the, the floor, a foot off the ground. Um, but the thing that was that was the uh, point of the picture is that um, while you're walking carefully, trying to, to not trip on the vines, as we do through life, trying to figure out God's will in a variety of situations, there was a gaboon adder camouflaged in the leaves. Very difficult to see. And the uh, thing I wanted to show you about that is that as you go through life uh, picking out God's will, we need to watch out for the gaboons. Uh, We know about the vines. Uh, We've we've grown up with the vines. Uh, But the gaboons, the things that catch us, gaboon adders are, oh, they get to maybe six foot long, pretty fat, uh, 15, 18 pounds. Uh, they have uh, one of the longest fangs of any poisonous snake, inch and a half plus long fangs. Uh, they have more venom than any other known snake. Um, according to what I read, I haven't tried this on, you know, on people, but they say it has enough to kill 30 men. Um, and they get very, very well camouflaged. Uh, it's difficult to see even on the, on, the, on the picture. So while you're picking through the vines, watch out for the gaboons. I am planning to speak this morning about a gaboon. One of the things that we have to watch out for, it's not something that's obvious. It's, it's hidden, hidden in the leaves. Uh, it's snake in the grass. It sneaks up on you. Actually, gaboons lie and wait to ambush. Uh, but you're walking through and step on a gaboon and, and he gets you. I mean, it's all, it's, it's you know, depends on what, what care you have available. Um, <clears throat> I'll do a little bit of a mind, mind exercise here of hypothetical discussion. If I say the, the term Christian nation, what comes to your mind? I say just, just, just describe, how would you describe a Christian nation? If you were to find a Christian nation, how would you know you found one? What are the characteristics of a Christian nation? If you were to invent a Christian nation, how would you go about inventing it? What, what, what points would you include to make this a Christian nation? 
the sides can be open if you care to have sunshine. Um, I like to send the feedback. Um, again, hypothetical, all sincere answers are good. Yes, brother. I don't there is any oh, come on. This is hypothetical. Anybody else? <laughs> Thank you for your answer. That was a good answer. I just said all good answers are good, are all honest answers are acceptable. <laughs> okay? Yes? Uh, William Penn uh, attempted it in Pennsylvania. That's here. Hey, let's have one right here. Okay, yes, sure. We're in a Christian. Okay. This is Pennsylvania. And he did it on the basis, as I understand it, of uh, goodwill towards all men, freedom of conscience, and expecting the best of all people. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. That's a good answer. William Penn tried it. He called it a holy experiment. Yes? Okay. Right, there's some historical examples. So, what about, let's go a little bit more detail here. What are the features they were looking for if they were to accomplish this Christian nation? Unity? Okay, unity? Okay. Peace, unity, peace. William Penn named his experiment Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Okay. He was hoping for love to be flowing around, sure. Okay, yes. The most outstanding characteristic I would think of is in um, adherence to God's law, whatever that means to them. Okay. Society. A society that adheres to God's law. Okay. You would need no police force. Sure. The Puritans didn't have any, right? Yes. Uh, William Penn's idea of a Christian nation was very different than the Puritans. Uh, yes, that's right. Very, very different. Yes. Yes, that's correct. All right, thanks for your comments. I just want to get your minds rolling here. What would a Christian nation look like if, there were, if we were to find one? If we would circumvent Dave's uh, obstruction there and actually find one? Um, somebody mentioned everyone living out God's laws. Okay. To many Americans in the past and present, a Christian nation will be patterned after the historical nation of Israel. God at the head of the nation, representing rightness to the world. And like I just mentioned, the New England Puritans, Pilgrims, uh, Separatists, I think they're called, certainly endorsed this view. The new world symbolized Canaan. They symbolized the Israelites. And guess who were the Canaanites? Right. Folks who had lived here for hundreds of years. They were the heathens. So we have a Christian nation set on a hill. The envy of the world. That's what uh, Bradford, I believe, was proposing. Well, the title that I have this morning is not Christian Nation. The whole title is The Myth of a Christian Nation. Or The Church in a World of Patriots. Long title. I like both of them. I have to keep them both. The Myth of a Christian Nation. Or The Church in a World of Patriots. Now, a myth is something that's not true. And it seems like the general consensus here is that the Christian Nation idea is... Uh, a uh, imagination. So, 
Uh, we're starting with that basis, I suppose, in our minds that a Christian nation, Christian nation is actually a myth. I don't have to persuade you of that. But there are, there are nations, there are governments, and I want to give you just a little skim over of the history of governments. So don't fall asleep on me, or it won't be long. The Old Testament, creation. Um, this is an intriguing point here. You can turn to these verses if you like, just real quickly here. Uh, Genesis 4, 13-15. It's about Cain. So Cain got mad at his brother, hit him with a rock, or whatever he did, hit him with a stick. Uh, maybe knifed him, not sure, not told how, how he killed him. Cain killed his brother. And God confronts Cain. And God tells him that he will be a vagabond through the earth. And Cain says, you know, my punishment is bigger than I can bear. I, I can't stand this. Anyone that finds me will kill me. And God said, no, they won't. I'm going to keep them from it. I'm going to put a mark on you. And anyone who kills you will get vengeance sevenfold, whatever that meant. You'd be killed seven times or something. I'm not sure. But they, um, you get vengeance sevenfold. First thing I'll notice here, capital punishment for murder prevented, excluded. None of it. By God. Okay. Cain killed Abel. No recompense. Cain gets, gets uh, banished. Yes. <clears throat> okay, just note, note that. God was the government at this point, And God, this is how God handled murder. He said, Cain, you're, you're going to be an outcast. Um, but no one kills Cain. Cain is, Cain is um, maybe he needed more genes to pass around. I'm not sure why, why God did that. But uh, he preserved Cain. And so, a few verses down in the same chapter, Genesis 4, 23 and following, you have Lamech. <clears throat> Lamech is the uh, polygamist in the Bible. Uh, and he says, you know what? I killed a man too. And I, 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 I'm not in danger. Cain, Cain got by with it. I'm not in danger either. So, uh, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, I'm avenged seventy-sevenfold. A bit of a haughty spirit, perhaps there. But he uh, still, the capital punishment, murder was not was not uh, uh, was not responded with with uh, capital capital punishment. Just want to note, note that that point about, and this is a God's instruction so far, as we can tell here. Uh, Genesis 4 is down <coughs> in verse 17 to 20. There were cities built. Um, nomadic social structure was, was uh, began. Different social structures and their own organi- organizational systems uh, came into place. Uh, we could say they evolved or just you know, happened by, happened by uh, uh, where the need was. People arranged themselves into family units. And in Genesis 6 then, 6.13, God says, the earth was corrupted and filled with violence. And I don't know if the uh, violence, what all they they included, but the um, legal system wasn't keeping a piece piece throughout the country, throughout the uh, the land. The earth was filled with violence. Okay, jump across the flood. Big water wash. Noah comes out of the ark, and God has some instructions for him, some, some um, hmm, updates, perhaps. 
Um, in Genesis 9, I'll read that whole verse here. I just uh, didn't write it down. Genesis 9, verse where am I? 6. Genesis 9, 6. Here's God talking to, to Noah. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, there's a cane again, whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God created he, God made man. So if Noah's um, descendant killed somebody, the city had a job. It wasn't a very nice job. This is after the flood. God instituted, commanded, capital punishment for murder. So God made the rules. You fill them out. Okay, that's the government. Now we have people uh, administrating government and administering capital punishment, uh, in this case, for murder. Whosoever sheds man's blood, man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. God's not going to knock him down or you know, kill him. But you have to, the people around you will have to kill that person. In Genesis 11, we have the tower of uh, the plain of Shinar, uh, maybe over close to Babylon nowadays. Uh, plain of Shinar, there was a very prosperous society. Violence didn't fill the land. There's some connection there. Stronger, stronger loss, a loss legal system, perhaps. I don't know. But they, they had a very prosperous society, so prosperous that God had to go mess it up. Right? They're building a big tower, a big city to make a name for themselves and not go scatter across the earth like God intended. So God says, you know, you're going to not understand each other. All right? And confusion reigned. And they got tired of babbling. So they moved. And they spread across, across the land. Um, but it was interesting, interesting to note that there was a large functional society at one spot. Um, and it didn't have the same, it didn't have the same uh, witness as before the flood. In Genesis 12, 12, Abraham is going down to Egypt because of a famine. And here we have a society in Egypt. Uh, and he's afraid that the Egyptians will kill him because his wife is a knockout. And she's like 75 years old. So she's, this is, that's what he said. He said, you are so beautiful they're going to kill me and make me a, make you a widow, and then they can take you. Okay, uh, that's what that's what their opinion was. Um, but well, the thing I'll put, put pick out about this story is that um, the king of or Abraham, at least, at least at least in Abraham's mind, the Egyptians would take the prerogative of killing him. They just wanted to because they wanted his wife. Okay. So there was, uh, and this was the king especially, that w- was um, set above, kind of above the law, and was allowed to kill and make alive as, as he uh, desired. So the king's prerogative was developed by this time. The king can do what he wanted to do. Because he was a king. 
type of uh, government. I'm just trying to kind of um, picking out types of government. In Genesis 14, there's a story about a lot being captured and taken away. And a lot of kings with long names came along and uh, took him away. Uh, something else I noticed out of that one, I think his name was Cadalore Momer or something. Uh, I missed a couple syllables, sorry. Um, I should read it. But, um, he was the guy in charge here. And he was going out and conquering these surrounding areas because he wanted to. Because he could. Uh, in modern times, that is called manifest destiny. If I can, I should. It's good. Sorry about you. And so he did. He went around and, and conquered various uh, villages and cities and people groups around him. And Sodom and Gomorrah got in that mix too. And Abraham went out and rescued him. And, but this, the point here is that um, imperialism. My country is the top of the world and everybody else must be under me. Was developed uh, quite well in Genesis chapter 14. War, patriotism, nationalism, and this manifest destiny idea was uh, well learned by Cadorlaroma. Okay? Be kind to your sons. Don't name them that. Then we have in Genesis 12, back up just a little bit there, Genesis 12, God's talking to Abraham and he says, I will make of you a great nation. So there's going to be another nation. It's going to be a nation that God has made and set up, not some long-named king. Um, let's pick out some other phrases. There are many. In Exodus 3, 7, it says, And the Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people. These are God's special project. And they're God's special called-out people. We know that God made a nation out of Abraham's descendants. But they're God's people. <clears throat> In Deuteronomy, he comments again about how special these people are. He found him in a desert land, in a waste and howling wilderness. That He led him about, instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. God's special people, governed under God. In Leviticus 24, 11 and following, um, Israel has come out of Egypt, and they don't have all their dots and T's crossings and I's dotted in their government set up yet. And so something bad happened. There was an um, Egyptian dad, a man, man married an Israelite woman, and they had, they had some children. So this Egyptian came along with the, with the Exodus. Well, this boy that they had was a rebel. He went out and had a fight with one of the Israelite people, and he didn't feel himself to be part of the Israelites. He began to curse and to, to swear at, their, their, uh, at the Israel and the God of Israel. So he got mad at the Israel guy. And so somebody heard him. Uh, several people heard him. And this was not going to fly. And so they brought him to Moses. And Moses said, I have to ask God about this. I don't know. So they did. They asked God about it. And then God said, all right, this is what you do. Uh, this, and he gave, a, gave a whole, gave instructions about this, this boy 
or probably young men or men, and also some other instructions. Um, and there again, he's reiterating that uh, blasphemy of the God of Israel is a capital, capital offense, um, as well as some other things like murder. And he's re- reinstating, reiterating what he told Noah. If there's a capital offense, a murder or blasphemy, um, I make the rules, you kill the guy. So all the people of Israel came around and threw rocks at this boy until he was smashed up. It makes an impression on the little children, doesn't it? <clears throat> I suppose it's supposed to be a preventative measure as well as a judgment on the sin. So we have very strong government <clears throat> um, under God's direction in Israel. Uh, in verse in, in uh, Exodus 17, 13-ish, uh, Israel's traveling through the uh, area close to the Amalekites and they come out and start chasing them, pestering them. And this is God's chosen people. Um, this isn't going to go. And so they had a fight. This is the first, first battle that I could find. There were Israel was in actual battle as a, as a, as a people group. Um, and they were out killing people all day long. At least trying to. Um, it took all day. Maybe they weren't you know, real successful. But they, there was a fight here. And Moses had his, his rod up. Remember the story there? <clears throat> um, but under, under God's blessing, Israel is, is killing the heathen persecutors uh, that were trying to block their way. After they got into the, into the promised land, there's a long section of history where there were judges and God raised up Gideon, God raised up Jephthah, God raised up Othniel, God raised up lots of people to rescue the Israelites from the oppression of their neighbors uh, in this worship God, worship idols, worship God, worship idols cycle. And then Samuel sets up Saul's kingdom in 1 Samuel 10. And then there are various kings and captives, captivities, and eventually the Roman conquest came uh, but the, the king, the king kingdom set up was, was in place uh, throughout the history up till the time of Christ. So, short little skim across a couple thousand years. Didn't take a thousand years. We don't do it in real time. Um, so, governments. We go from, from uh, you know, small governments before... Before the flood in the cities that uh, uh, Cain built a city, called it Enoch, I think, the small, small governments, to large governments like the Roman Empire. We do have some instruction. No, no. We do have some information. Some instructions, I guess. We do have some information what governments are supposed to do. God tells us what governments are supposed to do. For example... First uh, Peter two fourteen, First Timothy two two. Um, let me just quick turn to that. First Peter two fourteen. First Peter two fourteen. 
This is a section on submission. Uh, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or to governors. And this is what, what the governors are for. As unto them that are sent by him, by God, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. So according to the Bible, according to uh, Peter's inspiration here, governments are supposed to punish evildoers. They're supposed to foster and su- support well-doing. And there are a couple examples we can pick out of the, of the New Testament where this occurred. Uh, punishment of evildoers. For example, there were two thieves crucified by Jesus. Now, whether crucifixion is an apt penalty for thievery is beside the point. Um, but the evildoers were being punished. Um, and it's a little harder to find the praise of them that do well part in the New Testament. Um, we'll get to the reason why that was after a bit. But there was, I did pick out one. I did find one I think it will work. Um, in Acts 19, Paul is in Ephesus and Demetrius is mad because uh, he's afraid if people start worshiping Jesus and Jesus has no little image that goes with him, people will stop buying their silver images of Diana. And so he started up people and they began to shout and, and then it went to the uh, arena and yelled for two hours. Of course. And then the town clerk comes in. Um, I don't know what status the town clerk had in their, in their culture, uh, but it was somebody that the, the population listened to. The town clerk came in and said, Stop! Be quiet! This is not good. You're being foolish. You're yelling. If you have a problem with these people, take them to court. Take them to law. We have processes of government. Use the government for what it's supposed to be for. Don't stay here yelling at them for two hours. Uh, because... Rome won't be happy about these uproars. You're supposed to be behaving yourselves. And the people went home. A very good example of a government official that did the right thing, okay, according to the scripture. Uh, we're also told in 1 Timothy 2, too, if you haven't turned there already, um, that we're supposed to pray that we can live peaceable and quiet lives. And town clerks calming the crowd down, I uh, helped that a lot. The apostles didn't get pulled apart. Um, they actually moved away, moved on then, and preached somewhere else. So punishing evildoers, um, praising or supporting those that do well, and promoting peaceful living are three points that I found, picked out, that God says is the government's job. So now we know. So we can all go to Washington tomorrow and tell them, right? We'll get to that after a bit, too. (laughs) Governments are made of imperfect people who fulfill their purposes imperfectly. They are directly accountable to God, not the population. The founding fathers of this country didn't catch on to that. If you haven't memorized the Declaration of Independence in your schooling, let me just read you a little bit of it. Everybody around the world has these unalienable rights 
of life, liberty, and happiness in the pursuit. Whoops, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You never find it, but you can, you can chase it. That to secure the right to chase happiness, governments are instituted among men. That's what Thomas Jefferson and his friends said. The reason for government is so you can pursue happiness and have life as long as long as you do it and liberty to pursue your happiness. That's why governments are instituted among men and the governments derive their just powers. They, they have a right to do what they do. They derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. The only reason the government may tell you what to do is because you're fine with it. That's what Thomas Jefferson said and, his, and the uh, founding fathers. <clears throat> they didn't believe it. Okay. Anyway, that's what they said. They were great pretenders. And this just blows my mind. Um, not actually, but it, it's really risky. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government. Now, oh, what's the gentleman's name? It must have blew my mind. Let's see. Jefferson Davis believed this. Jefferson Davis believed it. The federal government in Washington did not believe it. No way. No way will you, tell, will you say, we don't like your government over there. We're going to have a new nation. They killed 400,000 people over that. There was no way will they let you go and make a new nation in the South and, and uh, be your own country unto yourself. Absolutely not. Much for their philosophies of the Declaration of Independence. My table's not wide enough up here. All right. So, um, in reality, according to the Bible, uh, governments are instituted by God, and God has his plans for what they would do. Another point I want to notice is governments are controlled by God. Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 27. Uh, this is a really intriguing passage, passage. Jeremiah 27. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Jeremiah 27. Jeremiah got a message and he said, you send messengers to the countries around Israel and Israel itself and tell them, um, just hang on here, Nebuchadnezzar over in Babylon is going to come over and um, overrule you for a while because I want him to. And if you say, no, we won't pay taxes to Babylon, he's going to Smash your cities down, so don't try it. Because I want Nebuchadnezzar to be in charge of the world right now. And that's what he says. You can, I don't want to take time to read the whole chapter. You can read it. Um, I'm just paraphrasing here, but it says, God says, I want Nebuchadnezzar to be in charge of the whole world right now, like this area. And so, just 
sit tight and, and cooperate with him. Because if you don't, he'll smash your cities down and kill you. And um, as I remember, it didn't go down too well with the Israelites, at least. And there was some resistance, and uh, he came and smashed our cities down and took them away, killed them in captivity, and, and, and took them into captivity and slavery. Uh, the point I want to bring out of this account is that this is the message that Jeremiah was sending out to the other countries, not even Israel only, but other countries, and telling, telling them that God said, I want Nebuchadnezzar to be in charge of this whole area of the world. And something else he says afterwards, that once Nebuchadnezzar has had his day, I'll choose somebody else to go be on top of Nebuchadnezzar and conquer him for a while. Which happened. So, um, in the Old Testament, we have the luxury of getting some behind-the-scenes views that we don't have in current events. <clears throat> uh, we, do, we do have this, this uh, example here of God arranging of who gets to be in charge of what, where. And notice, this is the country of Israel. God's precious, special people is involved in this too. It's not just the heathens. God said, I want Nebuchadnezzar to come and charge you tribute. You pay taxes back to Nebuchadnezzar to keep him pacified. Um, God's people being under subjection because God said so. In uh, Daniel 5, Daniel's telling Belshazzar, uh, I think the grandson of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, this story. He says, Daniel says, God gave your, your father, it must be his ancestor, his grandfather perhaps, uh, power and might, and then took it away again. And Belshazzar, you don't pay attention to that. You are being pretty high-minded here. Your kingdom is at its end. It says, that night Belshazzar was slain. Um, I think the Persians came in and ransacked the city, or, cat, or took, took the city. Another example of God being in control of governments was given by Jesus himself when he was on trial before Pilate. Uh, Pilate said, you know, you're not really defending yourself here. Don't you know that I can crucify, have you crucified, or I can have you released? And Jesus said, you don't really catch on to this. Jesus told Pilate, you have no power over me at all except what God gives you. But that set Pilate back for a bit. That's what Jesus said. You have no power over me at all, except what he's given you from above. So, that brings us up to the New Testament era in, in governments. Um, so before I go into the New Testament teaching on relationships to governments, I want to talk a little bit about what type of governments they had. Governments during the time of Christ and the apostles. There were the Palestine, Israel, was under the rule of Rome. Um, and there's a list of one, two, three, four, five, five emperors here, Caesars, um, 
that cover the time of before Christ was born up till um, the end of the apostolic time when Paul was, Paul was executed. Augustus Caesar. Um, all the world was taxed under his jurisdiction. And he seems to have died very soon after the birth of Christ. His death cause was probably natural causes of old age, or possibly his wife poisoned him. I'm not sure yet. Uh, the next emperor was Tiberius Caesar, which also mentioned in the Bible. Um, he died probably of natural causes. Maybe he was assassinated by Caligula, which was emperor right after him. And they're not sure. Uh, records weren't kept in those families. Very a lot of things are put under the rug, so it's a little difficult to tell what all happened. Uh, Caligula was emperor for three years, and some senators caught him in an aisle, in, in a hallway, in the Senate, and knifed him up, killed him on the spot. Uh, he was assassinated. So he didn't have his personal guard with him at the time. Claudius Caesar was put in, in place after Caligula. And his, the history records he was probably poisoned by his wife. These guys had some wives. He was probably poisoned by his wife for the purpose of having her son be emperor instead. Her son's name was Nero. He was about 17 years old. So, are you 17-year-olds? You ready for it? Um, don't talk to mom about this. It's not good. Uh, that, but these, these emperors, this is the kind of, of, of government that was in place throughout the time of Christ to the apostles. Nero was emperor 13 years, and he was so bad, he was declared by the Senate to be Rome's public enemy. And he knew that the army was coming after him, uh, they had different factions fighting for supremacy. And so he didn't have enough guts to kill himself until he asked someone to help him. And so he killed himself. Um, I believe he stabbed himself with some help because that was an honorable way to die. They couldn't quite get the guts to push into his guts. Okay. So the teaching we get from the New Testament on, on governments is talking about these folks. They're quite interesting people. That's uh, back in Rome. But where Jesus lived, where the apostles were, were working uh, during the uh, three years of Jesus' ministry, we have not the Roman Caesars in place right there. They were, of course, over the government uh, from Rome. We have the Herod family. <clears throat> they were characters, too. They killed many family members and political opponents. The Herods, uh, Josephus and the uh, Antiquities of the Jews, the War of the Jews, records a lot about the Herods. Um, they were the ruling class. And there are several generations of Herods. So you have um, Herod, Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, uh, and then Archelaus was another Herod in, in listed in the Bible and in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in Acts and in the Gospels. Of this Herod family. So Herod is not the last name. Josephus doesn't even mention the um, account of Herod sending out soldiers to Bethlehem and killing all the two-year-old boys. That was just normal stuff. 
he didn't bother talking about it, I suppose. I mean, he doesn't say why he didn't mention it. <laughs> okay. But he does mention other, other horrific things that Herod's, the Herods did. So just to give you an idea of what type of people these were. Herod the Great, he's called, killed his wife because he thought that she was going to get in the way of his kingdom. Herod the Great killed his wife. He killed his two sons for the same reason, because of jealousy. He killed his mother-in-law for the same reason, because in his political families, they would try to push their own relatives into place. It is quoted of Caesar Augustus that did the taxing in the time of baby Jesus. It is quoted of him that he said, I would rather be Caesar's pig than his son. Maybe he had a pet pig, I don't know. But he, he uh, wasn't nice to live with. And make sure you watch what you ate for breakfast around Herod. I'd rather be Herod's hog than his son. Attributed to Caesar Augustus. Um, Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great. He married his niece. His niece was called Herodias. And she uh, used to be married to Herod's half-brother, Philip. Um, And they did a swap out. No, one one way swap. I I guess. Uh, and John the Baptist, remember, didn't like, didn't, didn't like this. John the Baptist told Herod, um, this is not right. And so Herodias had it in for him. And so that's uh, Herodias' daughter did her thing with a, a group of, group of um, a man danced for them. And Herod said, he'll give her whatever he wants, she wants. And Herodias said, ah, John the Baptist is in prison. And you know the rest. It wasn't very pretty. Uh, Pilate. There's one little verse about Pilate's atrocities. Um, it says he mingled the blood of the Galileans with their sacrifices. Whatever that means. Not, not, not good. All right, I have a statement here. The amount of moral rot in a society is not dependent on the level of faithfulness of the Christian church within that society. Disciples of Christ must not be blamed for the moral decline of any nation. There is no causative relationship between the condition of the church and that of the national government. Historically, often the relationship has been inverse. Good government, bad church. Bad government, good church. Not what is, I think, commonly held in Christian circles, good church, good government. It doesn't usually work out that way. But I'm um, proposing from what I was studying that there is no causative relationship between the condition of the church and that of the national government. Just a little thing to think about. Uh, Jesus' relationship with government. He ran away from Herod the Great as a child because his, his parents took him. He avoided Archelaus, another Herod, by going living in Galilee, in Nazareth, instead of going back to where he used to live. He just stayed out of his, out of his way. Um, he, Jesus hid from political activists after feeding the 5,000. 
He detected they were going to take him by force and make him king. And he's out of there. Went and hid. Uh, Jesus approved paying tribute to Rome. The people of God paying taxes to a heathen nation. Jesus said, that's good, that's fine. Uh, he himself paid taxes to Israel, which, you know, of course, would sound, sound better. But, um, and then finally, he allowed himself to be captured and killed by government. What Jesus said about government, turn to Acts chapter 1. There's an intriguing verse. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Acts 1, 6 to, six to 8. This is after the resurrection and the, the, the ascension is about to take place here. And verse 6, when they were therefore come together, they, the disciples, asked him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And then Jesus responds. He said, Israel is none of your business. These were Israelites. Israel was God's chosen people. And they said, well, what about your chosen people, God's chosen people, the Israelites? And Jesus said, to the King James Version here, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put into his own power. But I'll tell you what is your business. You get power of the Holy Ghost. And you got a job to do. You forget about Israel. Israel is not your, your business. The nationality of Israel, how the government's coming along, uh, whether the Romans are persecuting them more or less, um, how the tribute's going. Disregard it. It is not for you to know the times and the seasons when Israel as a nation will become more prosperous or less prosperous. i got a job for you. Your job is to be witnesses Unto me in Jerusalem, Samaria, and other parts of the world. In Matthew 24, Jesus was talking about the political upheaval, about the uh, abomination of desolation coming into the temple. Um, maybe the heathen emblems coming into the temple. I'm not sure how, how that works out then in in, in uh, history. He said when 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 uh, upheaval occurs. It's try, to, try to escape. That's what you should do. Right, right, right. Live in the mountains for a while. Um, don't be involved in the upheaval. You should try, try to get out. Um, Matthew 10, 23, if they persecute you religiously, try to get out. Uh, if they persecute you in one city, flee to another one. Just try to get out. Don't go lobbying to the government. Also, um, he says in Matthew 10, 16, to 18, um, he's very clear about the they and you in Jesus' new kingdom. He says, sheep in the midst of wolves, they will bring you before them and accuse you and, and, and uh, try to squelch you. I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Uh, Jesus said governments are useful in spreading his witness. When they take you before the magistrates, tell them about Jesus. Tell them why you're preaching. 
And Paul did. Uh, John 18, 36. Uh, Jesus makes a statement here. He says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I would not be delivered to the Jews. So, we can make a logical statement here. No earthly kingdom is the kingdom of Christ. No earthly kingdom is the kingdom of Christ. Jesus says so. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, again stating it's not, we would do we would we would defend ourselves against the king against uh, defend ourselves in favor of the kingdom of Christ. A government that tolerates or even indulges Christianity does not make a Christian nation any more than a man who tolerates or indulges his dog makes him a dog. Similar, similar characteristic there. The government of a nation having laws that promote pleasant, orderly living, nice place to live, is as completely outside of the kingdom of Christ as that of a tyrannical dictatorship. That's a big mouthful, but that's what Jesus said. A nice government does not constitute a Christian nation. We live in a nice government right now, under a nice government. The reason that American laws allow non-payment of debt through bankruptcy, killing unborn children, and an assortment of fake marriages is not the decline of the church, but the kingdom of this world taking its natural course. That's just what happens. There's moral, moral decline. Moral doesn't just mean biblical. It means um, what's fair, and equitable. Moral decline happens because they're the kingdom of this world. Uh, what the apostles said on government. Pray, pay, obey. You've heard those before. And that's, uh, pray for government officials for a peaceable uh, uh, society. Pay their taxes. Pay them to, to pay the policemen to come and oppress you. Titus 3.2 says, Speak evil of no man. Referring to some government in that, that passage. And this one bites us. See, these, these gaboons, they get us. We're trying to creep across the tangle of life. And these, this church-state Christian nation thing, it gets us. And we think that government people ought to be nice and kind and just and honest. They have no responsibility to be nice and kind and just and honest. That's between them and God. They're not in the kingdom of Christ. They cannot act like the kingdom of Christ if they tried. It's not their fault. Okay. Um, if they are in the government as a whole. Now, we know the government is made up of individuals. And individuals get called out. Paul tried that with Festus and Felix. They were part of this Roman government. He said, you know, Jesus Christ he, he, um, is, 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 is worth, worth, worth serving. And, and they trembled. and said, you're right, but I can't quite make it. I'd lose all my position. You know, um, we're not given a lot of conversation between them. But individually, yes, they're, they're, they're redeemable. Uh, salvation's open for everybody, from the president down to the uh, government official. But 
Oh, I don't know, whatever he does. You know, the whole range. Um, political jokes bite us sometimes. Governments are supposed to spend your money on foolish, on money on things, okay? And so, sometimes people have jokes. I'll just take, take you one joke and then to, uh, I'll, I'll rebut it, okay? Um, last winter, it was so cold that politicians in Washington had their hands in their own pockets instead of in other people's pockets. Okay? So, that's, that's a joke that I've heard. It's disrespectful. It is a joke aimed at something God said governments ought to do. And it's wrong. It's funny, okay? But would you say a joke like that about your pastors here? I hope not. I hope you wouldn't. You know, Earl had his hands in his own pockets instead of anybody else. Well, their people speak evil of no man, Earl or the senators or, or, the, or Congress. And taking your money to support the government that you can't believe in is their job. And Jesus supported it. He, he, he said, sure, pay, pay the Romans their, their, tithe, their, their, their money. All right, contradictions between the way of Christ and politics. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Politics, politicians can't do that. Uh, President Obama, when he was a senator, is quoted as saying, the Sermon on the Mount is so radical that it's doubtful that our own defense department would survive its application. <laughs> no, I think the doubtfulness is really low, pretty much a certainty. <laughs> Politicians cannot follow the Sermon on the Mount. If they try, they look very, very foolish to Christians and unbelievers alike. Prefer one another above each other. How about it, Mr. Trump? <laughs> or Hillary Sanders? You can't do it. Politicians are not able to act according to their own values. Pilate got stuck killing Jesus. He didn't want to. He could have released Jesus and escaped to Egypt or something. That would have ended his career. Um, Herod Antipas was stuck killing John the Baptist. He didn't want to. The Jewish officials were stuck uh, giving a silly ignorant answer to Jesus when he said, Jesus asked him, was John uh, preaching from God or from men? Well, they were afraid of what they would say. They gave a silly answer. They'd say, oh, we don't know. Okay. And Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House currently, is now stuck with, very probably, supporting Donald Trump as runner-up for president, as, as candidate for president. That is a big foot in his mouth. I would not like to be in his place. I'm glad I'm not. Um, he is the second in line for presidency. 
uh, Paul Ryan is. Speaker of the House, as president gets killed, vice president gets killed, Speaker of the House is president automatically. That's my understanding of the hierarchy there. So he's in a high position. I don't know that any Speaker of the House has ever gotten the presidency that way, but I believe that's the arrangement. Politics and the way of Christ do not mix. Any effective political statement can have at least two contradictory meanings. Another statement here. Laws against murder cannot curb hate. Laws against adultery cannot curb lust. Laws against robbery cannot curb covetousness. Laws against gambling cannot curb greed. A nation cannot be a disciple of Christ. Therefore, a nation cannot fall away from Christ. America does not need Jesus. America cannot get Jesus. America does not have Jesus available to it. But Americans desperately need Jesus. Let me read you a verse out of Second Chronicles. Then I'll sit down. Second Chronicles 7.14 If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. If that verse and the nice song that we sing from here, here sometimes, if that verse gets you thinking about mass revivals in the United States, um, Roe versus Wade overturned, abortion laws kicked back, gay marriage laws repealed. If that's what this verse brings to your mind, you've been bitten by the gaboon. Right. Okay. God bless you.